I read recently of a um, State Department dinner that was held at the White House and attended by several dignitaries from Middle Eastern countries. And due to the heightened security alert, each ambassador brought along his own aides to ensure his safety and to address to his needs in that particular meal. And during dinner, the Afghanistan, the Afghanistan ambassador ate something that was rather spicy and salty and not being used to it, having eaten bland food the majority of his life. He sent his aide, to dispatch his aide to go get him some water. And he came back and gave him some water. And this went on throughout the course of the evening until one such request, the aide came back and he had no water with him. And the ambassador said, where's my water? He said, I'm sorry, I couldn't get you any. He said, well, were they out of water? And he said, no, sir, I don't think they were out of water. He goes, well, I don't understand. Why didn't you get me any water? And he said, well, there was a man sitting on the well. And um, <laughs> think about it, it's early, but you had an extra hour of sleep, so, you know, there's no excuse for that. And speaking of famous last words, turn with me to the Apostle Paul's letter that was written as he awaits his certain death to Timothy. And as Paul encourages Timothy to not be ashamed of the gospel and to proclaim it boldly, he kind of switches to a discussion of difficult times as further motivation for boldness in one's witness. And in 2 Timothy chapter 3, we read these words that tell us and tell Timothy and us that difficult times will be coming. And because of these difficult times, we should be motivated with an extra sense of motivation to share the truth of God's word with those God brings into our life. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, starting with verse 1, we read these words. It says, but realize this, that in the last days difficult times will come. For men will be lovers of self and lovers of money, boastful and arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips without self-control, brutal, hatreds of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding the form of godliness although they have denied its power and avoid such men as these. For among them are those who enter into households and captivate weak women. It says, captivate weak women weighed down with sins and led by various impulses always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. And just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth, men of depraved mind, rejected as regards the faith. But they, will not make, but they will not make further progress, for their folly will be obvious to all, as also that of those too came to be. But you followed my teaching, conduct, purpose, faith, patience, love, perseverance, persecutions, and sufferings, such as happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, what persecutions I endured, and out of them all the Lord delivered me. And indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, but evil men and impostors will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. You know, the full counsel of God has always been displeasing, unacceptable, and even repugnant you know, to self-centered, self-serving, and worldly mankind when you stop and think about it throughout all the ages. You know, but even in the professing church today, there is in great, there's been a great progression or digression, so to speak, as it, re- as it regards confusion and apostasy and moral decay. And there's an acceptance of things that have never been accepted before. 
you know, there are sermons on current issues and they selectively choose passages out of the Bible uh, that are, quote, relevant and positive, you know, to attract many hearers, including those who are genuine believers, but misled and worldly as such. And the reason for it's quite simple, and we'll find out in, a, in two weeks from now, but, you know, in chapter 4, Paul says to Timothy, for the time will come in verse 3 when they will not endure sound doctrine. But wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth. You know, in that time, as we're looking at this, we, we begin to see that, you know, what he's saying is that there's a time coming and is now here when people will not be able to handle the truth. They will not want to hear the truth. And so they will accumulate for themselves people who will tell them what they want to hear. And they will seek those people out. And those people will be there to tell people what they want to hear. And it's interesting and fascinating as we look at this as it relates to difficult times that Paul gives us four reasons to find encouragement concerning these difficult times that will come. And we'll take a look at each one of them individually. But the first and the most encouraging thing of all of it is, as we look at this, is the future is controlled by God. And to that we can find great encouragement. You know, God is in absolute control of all things. The future is controlled by God. And in verse 1, he sees, we see that, and we're told, by, but realize this. In the last days, difficult times will come. You know, as has been mentioned a moment ago, you know, the world has always rejected the full counsel of God. And the reason that I emphasize the full counsel of God is that, you know, man has always accepted, enjoyed, and even supported uh, those truths of Scripture which, in which they benefit. For example, if you take the commandment, thou shalt not steal. Well, you know, the only people who find that commandment offensive are those who steal. If you're not a thief, you think that's a pretty good commandment. You know what I mean? Thou shalt not steal. And we are all in agreement who go out and work hard for the possessions that we have, that it's a good thing that God condemns other people taking our stuff after we've worked hard to be able to possess it. And so everyone say, hey, that's a great, you know, that's a great commandment, all in agreement. Thou shalt not commit adultery, man. You know, every spouse is all for the fact that their spouse shouldn't be out having sexual relationship with somebody other than themselves. Everyone goes, man, that's a great commandment. You know, so we look at it, and the ones that benefit us, we will be in 100% support. But the ones that convict us of our guilt before God, ooh, those are the ones we don't like. See, those are the ones we don't like. And so we'll seek out people who will tell us what we want to hear in those areas of our life where God says, you're guilty. You're guilty before God of violating the standard that is set. You know, and, and it's the same of all God's truth. Those things that don't apply to us because we're not guilty, they're all good. Those things that apply to us because we're guilty, eh, that's maybe not what it really means. Maybe, you know, and there's a different interpretation for that. And so we begin to play that game, and, and as we look at this, what we have here and we see is while the world has always opposed the full counsel of God, the most serious and lamentable aspect of rejection of God and his word is the danger that comes from within the church. See, in Acts chapter 20, if you recall our study through the book of Acts, if you remember, Paul called the elders of the Ephesus church to come and join him at Miletus before he departed from, from that particular area. And he called them to himself and said, I want to warn you ahead of time that there will be ravenous wolves who rise up from among you and they will lead the people astray from God's truth. It is a warning that is a certainty. 
It is a warning that is understood very clearly by the word of God that among those who profess to be Christians, among those who profess to be pastors, teachers, evangelists, among those who are leaders in God's church will come those who are basically ravenous wolves but dressed in sheep's clothing. And we need to be aware of them because they are dangerous to our spiritual health and they will lead us in a direction that will be destructive to us spiritually and not constructive in building us up in the cause of Christ. We need to be able to identify them for who they are. And it's a very sad statement of our culture today that anytime a message like this would be proclaimed, there will be people who will be offended and say, who are we to judge? In the spirit of love and unity, let's not judge anything. And I say, you know what? That is a lie from the pit of hell. We are to examine even ourselves to make sure that we're in the faith. We're to examine those who profess to be Christians to see if the profession of faith adds up to and is equivalent to what God says the conduct of faith is. That our lips and our life are walking in the same direction. That our creed and our conduct are going in the direction that God says it should go. We are commanded to judge one another according to the standard of God's word. And if we do not do that, we will not be protected from those who will come in and introduce heresy and lies from hell that will lead people astray from the truth of God. So we've got to look at the full counsel of God. Whether we like it or not, it is there for a purpose, and the purpose is to make sure that you and I do not get led astray by those who profess one thing, but internally are something different. And you need to examine me. You need to examine what I say, as the Bereans did, and examine it to make sure that what I say to you lines up with the truth of God's word. You need to hold me accountable as much as we need to hold anyone who teaches the word of God accountable. We all need to be held accountable to the standards of the word of God. I am not above that accountability any more or any less than anybody else, and I pray that you people continue to hold me accountable to the full counsel of God as you examine scripture to make sure that that is indeed what the word of God has to say. Now, I don't care so much about your opinion as I do what God says. If you have a problem with me that is scriptural, man, I'll talk to you about it and we'll get into it and we'll dig into it and we'll seek God's truth. If you just don't like some of my jokes, you know, don't waste your time. So, the point is this. Things have not gotten any better. In fact, they have gotten worse. And in this passage, Paul will help guide us through these treacherous waters that the Bible clearly teaches will come and are here. The command that we see is that we are to realize this or to know this. You know, we are encouraged by the fact that God is in complete control of everything because as we see this, he says, but realize this, or some translations, but know this for certainty. Realize this or know know this translates a Greek perfect tense carrying the idea of continuity or consistency or constancy. In other words, don't ever forget this. Don't ever lay your guard down. Don't ever get lazy as it comes to the study of the word of God and hearing the word of God taught by others. You know what? Always be alert to the fact that something that might be said won't add up to what God's word would want us to know. We always got to be examining it. That's why the Bereans were commended by God. They examined the scriptures daily to make sure that even what Paul was teaching was the truth of God. So, you know, I mean, I have no problem in understanding that, you know what, I am far from above accountability. I mean, you know what? The Apostle Paul was accountable. We're all accountable. 
There's no one other than God who is above accountability because God is God and the rest of us aren't. Makes it simple. But realize this and know this. In other words, don't ever forget, in contrast, notice verse 1 starts out with the word but, which means a contrast to what we had just learned. In contrast to those who are clean vessels, in verse 21, or vessels of honor, those who pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, there will be those who are self-serving and manipulative. There's the contrast. Don't fool yourself. The Bible says don't be deceived. What a man sows, he's going to reap. So don't be deceived. We can be encouraged by the fact that God knows everything and God knows the heart of men. And all things are open and laid bare to him to whom we have to do. He's saying know this. In contrast to those who are pursuing righteousness, love, and peace, there will be those who are manipulative and self-serving and we need to be able to identify one from the other. Know this with a certainty that those people exist. The character of the days that he's talking about, he calls difficult. Now, it says in the last of days, it's important to understand what the Bible teaches as far as those last days. Because if those last days aren't here, then this doesn't really apply to us, but it's future tense. But the reality of what the Bible teaches, according to Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, we read this. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets and in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. In these last days, he goes on and says in Acts 2, this is what was spoken through the prophet Joel. It shall be in the last days that God says, I will pour forth my spirit upon all of mankind. In these last of days, God has spoken through his son. The essence of the entire message of God, if you go through the whole Old Testament to the New Testament is that God was preparing the world for the day that he would send the Savior into the world. All of the sacrificial systems of the Old Testament were a shadow of what God would do in Christ on the cross. It says without the shedding of blood, there could be no forgiveness of sin. Everything that God did in the Old Testament prepared for the day that God would send his son into the world, born of a woman. In the fullness of time, God sent forth his son in order that he would seek and to save that which was lost by dying upon the cross. All those who practiced according to what God had told them should have been adequately prepared for the fact that God in Christ reconciled mankind to himself. In these last of days, God spoke. His entire message is summarized in Jesus Christ. His death upon the cross and the power of his resurrection. It was predicted all through the scriptures that the day would come, that he would suffer, he would die. Isaiah 53, Psalm 22, that he would suffer, that he would die, but he would be raised up again three days later. Jesus himself predicted, I'm going into Jerusalem and I will suffer under the hands of the chief elders and the priests and I will suffer many things. I will die, I will be crucified, I will rise again, but don't sweat it because three days later I will meet you in Galilee. It's all the plan of God coming to fruition. In these last of days, God poured forth his spirit upon the world, upon mankind. We are living in these last of days. It began when Jesus Christ came into this world and it continued when the Holy Spirit of God was poured out at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. We, you and I, are living in these last days. Therefore, this is applicable to us. What is applicable? These last days, it will be difficult. It'll be difficult. The word actually is translated in other areas of the Bible as violent. 
in these last days, there will be a violent rebellion against God and the things of God. In these last days, there will be a violent rebellion against the truth of God's word. And it won't just be coming from outside the church. It'll be coming from within the professed church and the apostasy takes place. There will be men who stand at the pulpit and they deny the inerrancy and the authority of the word of God. There will be men who stand in the pulpit and they will teach truths that aren't truths at all, but they'll teach a gospel that's not the gospel at all. They will teach lies from the pit of hell and they will come dressed in sheep's clothing, but then inside there'll be ravenous wolves. And God says, know this, realize this, be awake, be alert, don't get lazy in your faith, don't leave your first love, stick to understanding that the word of God is everything God has given us, coupled with the Holy Spirit living within the heart of believer, so that we can recognize an error when we hear it, and the world cannot. The world will be deceived because its father is the father, is the father his father is the devil. The Bible says that those unbelievers, hey, you're of your father the devil. He was a liar from the beginning. He's a murderer and he's a deceiver and you're deceived by him. But we who are God's people have the spirit of God living within us so that we can recognize a lie when we hear it. There's no excuse other than the fact that we choose to rebel against God because that portion of scripture, the full counsel of God, is something we don't want to hear because we're guilty of it before God. We need to recognize and understand the character of those days will be difficult. And the beauty of all of it is, is that God tells us it'll come with certainty. God knows the future because God is in control of all things. Just as I mentioned that Jesus often told his disciples the day was coming and now was when he would go into Jerusalem, that he would suffer, that he would die, he would be raised again. There's comfort in knowing that God can tell us what's going to happen before it actually happens. If God would say, Chuck, don't worry about it. The angels were going to win in the bottom of the ninth today. I could go to the game and enjoy it much more so than last night. (laughs) To have that kind of certain knowledge of the future should give all of us great peace that God is in control of all things. It's like watching a game videotaped. And you already know what happens. It's beautiful. What a great way to live. Well, you and I can live that way. We can live with the same peace, the same assurance, the same confidence, the same comfort, knowing that God is in control of the future and he's given us a glimpse of what to expect. It's wonderful. The future is controlled by God. And there's nothing more comforting than that. Now, the second thing that we're going to look at is, he says there's a form of godliness that will take place in these last of days. But the form of godliness or the outward appearance of it is powerless. It's powerless. There's nothing to it. It's like a car without an engine. You know, it's, it, it looks great from the outside. By all outward appearances, man, it looks good. But there's no engine to drive it. It doesn't get anywhere. It doesn't go anywhere. But man, I'll tell you what, the world is filled with religious institutions that look wonderful, but have no engine driving it. We were in San Francisco this past week, and I went and looked at a cathedral that is there. And I walked into this beautiful building, and you recognize the history of it. And I'm not going to name the denomination because it's not as important, but to recognize, you know what? There are just denominations out there that have totally gone away from the authority of the Word of God. They have totally gone away from the inerrancy of Scripture and they have replaced it with things that are more politically correct. And nowhere in the world like San Francisco will you find that to be true. 
Well, there's probably other places in the world. But it was apparent to me while we were there. And the purpose of the statement is that as I walked in, I thought, wow, you know, look at this grand edifice, this, this beautiful facility that at one time was dedicated to the truth of the word of God. And now it's just basically self-guided tours and drop in, you know, your gift and it maintains the facility. And of course, I didn't drop in any gift because I don't want to see anything like that maintained. But I just thought how sad it is. And all you have to do is go around the world, go to places in Europe where uh, from a historical standpoint, there were, there were no more fired up preachers of the gospel of Jesus Christ than those that came out of, of the Church of England. And you go there now and you're looking at dead churches. You're looking at churches that on the outside look really good, but the content on the inside is garbage, junk, powerless, void of any presence of God whatsoever. So Paul's description is of these seasons of danger is very specific, again, indicating that God knows what's going on. Now, if you look back at 2 Timothy, you realize he says, for men, in verse 2, men specifically refers to not, un, un, not, not those unbelievers, not worldly people, but he's talking about men within the church, men who are pastors, men who are evangelists, men who are elders, men who are leaders in the church. In the specific context of 2 Timothy, he's referring to the leaders in the church. And he wants us to recognize and understand some of the chief characteristics of those who are leaders in the church but are far from God. Far from God. Chief characteristics, number one, notice what he says. For these men will be lovers of self. Lovers of self. Not only will they be lovers of self, but they will promote and teach loving yourself. This is in direct conflict with all the Bible teaches. And those who love their se- themselves and promote such will teach the same. And it rarely is blatant. It is always very subtle. These men will be lovers of self. This heresy has slipped into the church through anti-biblical psychology, period. Terms such as self-esteem, self-worth, self-fulfillment, positive self-image are commonplace and accepted in the church today. It is widely claimed that a person cannot love God or others rightly unless and until he loves himself. And that is a lie from the pit of hell. It is a lie, period. And the Bible clearly will tell us that is the case. The Lord Jesus Christ himself taught the greatest commandment is what? That you love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And that you love your neighbor as yourself. And those two commandments, all of scripture is summarized. You love the Lord your God wholeheartedly, heart, mind, soul, and strength, and that you love your neighbor as yourself. The inference, the implication is very simple. God knows we already love ourselves. Our problem is loving God wholeheartedly. Our problem is loving others as we already love ourselves. We don't need commanded to love ourselves. We all already do. The problem is we don't love others as we love ourselves. 
and we don't wholeheartedly love God. You will never find anything in Scripture to validate you can't love others until you rightly love yourself. That's nonsense. And there's nothing new to the problem of self-love. Consider that Augustine wrote in the city of God, two cities have been founded by two loves. The earthly by the love of self, even to the contempt of God. The heavenly by the love of God, even to the contempt of self. The former, in a word, glorifies itself. The latter, the Lord. In his work, The Institutes of Christian Religion, John Calvin wrote this. For so blindly do we all rush in the direction of self-love that everyone thinks he has good reason for exalting himself. There is no other remedy than to pluck up by the roots that most noxious pest self-love. Another man writes, The concept of self-love as a positive characteristic did not find its way into the church until the late 20th century. And lamentably, it has spread quickly to broad portions of evangelicalism. It says, contrary to the unambiguous teaching of Scripture and contrary to its clearly destructive consequences, the heresy of self-love continues to find acceptance among those who claim Christ. The roots of the modern infatuation with self-love can be traced to the humanism of the 19th century, especially the development of evolutionism. If a man is seen as the product of impersonal chance, God is ruled out, making the elevation of self perfectly acceptable. Because there's no basis for right or wrong, the individual's natural bent to self-centeredness is reinforced. And he finds consummate justification for being his own God who does his own will. Each man is, in this philosophy, captain of his own ship, master of his own fate, and cannot allow his self-will to be hindered or he does harm to his well-being. The most common error in people's self-images is not unrealistically low self-esteem, but rather self-serving pride. Not an inferiority complex, but a superiority complex. complex. Even self-deprecation, which is putting yourself down before others, is but a thinly disguised attempt to get others to build you up. Self-love. And the Bible clearly teaches that we are to deny ourselves. Daily, picking up our cross, and following Jesus Christ. The Bible clearly teaches that we are to consider others more important than ourselves. The Bible clearly teaches that we are to have an attitude of humility, the same attitude that was demonstrated by our Lord Jesus Christ when he took on the appearance of man being made a likeness of a man and was humbled to the point of death, even death upon the cross, that we're to have the same attitude that was displayed in Jesus Christ, and the humility, who though he was God, did not regard himself equal to be God, or equality with God, a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, and he humbled himself. The Bible clearly teaches that God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time. You know, when the apostles, the disciples argued about who would be the greatest in the kingdom of God, he said, you know what, if you want to be great in God's kingdom, you've got to be the least. If you want to be first, you've got to be last. You will never find anything in scripture that remotely teaches or encourages any of us to love ourselves. And in fact, if anything, we are to deny ourselves. Self-esteem, self-worth, self-this, self-that has all replaced self-denial as the truth of scripture. And we need to recognize and understand that when we raise ourselves, God is lowered. 
that when we put ourselves on the throne, we kick God off of his rightful position as the, as the, as the Lord and the king of the universe, as the God of all gods. See, you know, and closely related to this back in 2 Timothy chapter 3 is that when you love yourself, it's, it's, it's natural that you'll become a lover of money. Lovers of money. Close related is the loving of money or the sin of materialism. It's being covetous for earthly possessions of whatever sort that they are. That these men will be lovers of self and therefore they will love materialism or the things that come with it. They will love money. False teaching always leads to false living and it's no surprise that if you love yourself that you also live wrong in the area of materialism. It goes hand in hand. And when we look at this, you know, think about the questions that are usually asked when we go to consider buying something. What can you afford per month? What can you afford? That has replaced the question of, God, what is it that you want to do with your resources for your kingdom? And we're told we deserve it. We don't deserve anything other than the judgment of God. It's by his grace and his mercy that we will never experience the wrath of God to those who are in Christ. But we're encouraged all the time. Go into a bookstore, you'll find self-help books all over the place. Self, 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 self. Toby Keith, you know what? I just want to talk about me. You know, I don't mind talking about you, but you know what? I'll talk about me and mine, mine, mine. Wow, wow, whatever, however all that stuff goes in that song. But it's all about me. That's the, the society we, we live in. It's all about me. But you know what? When do we ask God, what do you want me to do with what you have given me to further your kingdom? I have seen firsthand ministries that love money at the expense of loving God that love money at the expense of the truth of the word of God. There's a lack of financial accountability. They're juggling funds from one area to the other. There are questions that are asked like, is this your tithe or is this your offering? That is never to be asked by anyone. I know churches that post up giving at the back of the church so everyone sees who's giving and who's not giving. And if you're behind, we notice you're behind. One of the most disgusting stories that I've ever heard, I was called by a guy when I was working with the Rams. He called me and said, Chuck, I gotta talk to you. He was a new believer had just come to faith in Christ within the past year, and he said, I'm troubled by a phone call I just got. So what? What happened? He goes, I got a call from a ministry that we had sent a gift to. And the people there called me and said, we noticed that you haven't sent your check this month. And he said, I, and I, I said, well, we never promised that we would send a monthly check. Now, if you make a commitment to ministry, then honor it, you know, be honor your word. But they never made a commitment. They gave a one-time gift. And the guy said, well, we noticed you haven't sent it this month. And he said, well, I never promised that we would send you ongoing support. And he said this. We can't guarantee that you will be protected by God and covered by our prayers for you if you do not send us your gift. Can you imagine? And you know what I told him? Flee from people like that. Run as fast as you can because they are wolves dressed in sheep's clothing. They are lovers of money. How sad it is. But we should be aware because he said, know this. Realize this. There will be people like that out there. And they will be within the church. And we need to hold such people accountable to the word of God. You know what the word of God teaches? One cannot love money and God. You will love one and despise the other. Matthew chapter 6. You know what the word of God teaches? That we are to give anonymously. 
that we are to give generously, that we are to give cheerfully. The Word of God teaches that we are stewards of God's resources and that it's all God's. We are to manage His resources according to His needs and according to His leading in our life. We are told that to use money as a tool to bring others to Christ. We are told to store up for ourselves treasures in heaven where thieves can't break in and steal and moth and rust cannot destroy. We are told all of those things from the Word of God. We are told not to put our hope or trust in riches but in God. We are told all of that, and, and the rest of the stuff that we're talking about is just a lie from hell. It is a lie from hell. Men who love their, themselves will love money and teach others the same. And such selfishness is described in both wrong attitudes that lead to wrong actions, and that's the rest of what we see here. For men will be lovers of self, they will be lovers of money. They will be boastful, meaning prideful. They will boast about their accomplishments. It'll all revolve around them, and the majority of the time, they'll, they'll always say, but it's not about me. You know what? Every time I hear somebody say, it's not about you, and then guess what? I'm thinking, you know what? It's a lot about you. It really is. They'll be boastful. They'll be prideful. Well, you know what? In my last ministry, or in this thing, or in that thing, I did this, and I accomplished that, and I did whatever. You know what? So what? Prideful, boastful. Arrogant goes hand in hand. You know, God's opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. There'll be arrogant revilers. Revilers is an interesting word. As we look at it, it has to do with blasphemers. They basically say that, you know what? No, you know what? Not all of God's truth is inerrant. Not all of God's truth is authoritative. We hear silly things like that all the time. Well, you know, I just believe that, you know, the words of Jesus are inspired. Just the red letters in the Bible. Really? Where'd you come up with that? Oh, because you don't like what Paul writes about certain things that you're conducting in your life that the Bible clearly teaches is sin. Oh, so we like the words of Jesus. Well, you know what? But Jesus authenticated the entire word of God. All scriptures inspired by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, for correction, and training in righteousness. It's all God's word, not just what we like. He goes on and says, they're disobedient to parents. They teach disobedience. They teach, you know, I mean, our, our, if you look around, you know, the secular uh, educational system is filled with people that, you know, they promote one thing, but they teach something else. And, and as we look at this, we need to be aware of that. They're ungrateful. They feel like they deserve it. I had a guy in a ministry one time that they got a check from an individual and said, man, that's all that he sent me. I can't believe everything I've done for him and his family, that that's all he sent me. Man, a flag went up in my heart that day and went, man, you know what? Keep an eye on this guy, man. There's something wrong here. Because those who love themselves, look what I did for you. It's no wonder that it's like, now look how you should repay me with some kind of remuneration. Man, there is something seriously wrong in the heart of a person who would say that. And the fact that they said it out loud, it's bad enough you think it. But when you say it out loud, you kind of go, oh, did I say that out loud? Uh, yeah, you did. And I'm real glad you did. I'm keeping my eye. He goes on, unloving. He goes, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable. The word irreconcilable means that they're without change of mind. Even though confronted with the facts of the word of God, they will not change their mind. It also means not honoring your commitment that you made. You know, your yes, yes, your no, no. The reality of it is, is that we've got people in the church who say one thing and do another thing. We've got to hold such people accountable to the word of God. 
He goes on, a malicious gossips, those who destroy those around them at whatever price so that they themselves look better. Without self-control means, you know what, there's no, there's no semblance of understanding what is right or wrong. There's no denying oneself. And why should we? Because we're all into self-esteem, self-worth, self-gratification. Why would we be into self-denial? And so there's a lack of self-control when it comes to the things that God says we should not do that he calls sin. Hater, brutal, savage. The word brutal means savage. There's savagery, uh, uh, malicious uh, from the outside. As we've already talked, as, as Paul warned to the Ephesian elders, that there would be those who would be brutal or savages would rise up from within them. Haters of good are what God teaches as truth. Truth, they're treacherous. Uh, they're, they're traitors, basically, is what it means. Man, they'll sell you out in a second. They'll throw you under the bus for their own agenda in a second without even thinking about it and without even consulting God or the word of God. You know, Judas is is an example of one who is a traitor or treacherous. Who, what did he do? He sold out his Lord. He sold out the Savior of the universe for 30 pieces of silver money. You cannot love both God and money. You will despise one and you will love the other. Haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power, and that's the reality of the gospel of Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 18 through chapter 2, verse 5. Read it when you have a chance. Because Paul said this, I've come to preach Christ and him crucified. Not my opinion, not my philosophy, not anything else, but Christ and him crucified. That is why he wrote to the Romans, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. For it, the gospel of Jesus Christ, is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe, the Jew first. And then the Gentile. Only the gospel of Jesus Christ can change the heart of man. Only the gospel of Jesus Christ can take a person who is dead to God and alive to sin and make him alive to God and dead to sin. It's only the gospel of Jesus Christ that can change and transform the heart of man. That is why I said I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I don't care whether you like it, dislike it. It is the power of God unto salvation. It is God's way. The only way, the only truth, the only life. There's no other way to the Father but through a personal faith and trust in Jesus Christ, his death upon the cross and the power of his resurrection for your sin and for my sin. There is no other way. The outward form of godliness have denied the very power of the gospel. And the clear challenge is this. Avoid people like that. Anybody who teaches anything contrary to sound scripture, the full counsel of God, run from them. Go to another church. Seek out another Bible study. Go where the word of God is preeminent and it's held on a pedestal as inerrant, authoritative, the final word of God to all of mankind. And the full counsel of God is taught, not just the bits and pieces that people will like. All of it, period. And he says, avoid people like this. Because their conduct is corrupt. They take advantage of those who are ignorant of Scripture and manipulate them for their own purposes. For from among them are those who enter into households, notice, and captivate weak women weighed down with sins. The whole idea here is sexual immorality. There are those in a leader, leadership or trusted position who manipulate others for their own personal selfish sexual ambitions or sexual fulfillment. We see it all the time when we see pastors fall in the ministry in the area of sexual immorality. They, they end up captivating those who are underneath their teaching and they manipulate them for their own sexual gain. We see it all the time. We read about it all the time. Pick up the newspaper. We see it happen 
happening all around us, whether it's you know, men who are manipulating women, and in some cases men who are manipulating girls and boys. Flee from people like that and seek out sound teaching. He said, always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of truth. Man, they're always learning. They got another degree, another degree, another degree. But you know what? It's just a degree that is in frustration is all it is. Because until a person humbles themselves before God, broken and contrite for their sin, turning from sin and turning to God and trusting in Christ and the power of his resurrection, his death and his resurrection, you and I will never and can never be born again and made right with God. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he will exalt you at the proper time. A broken and contrite heart God will never despise. Corrupt conduct. And the continual consequence of that conduct is this. They're always learning and they're never able to come to the knowledge of truth. Now what Paul also warns is that, you know, let's take a look at the lifestyle and the foolishness or the folly of that lifestyle. In verses 8 and 9 he says, And just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth. Men of depraved mind rejected as regards of the truth. What he's saying is these people resist the truth of God. Janus and Jambres, according to Jewish literature, were two of the mag magicians in Pharaoh's court who tried to duplicate the miracles of God that were performed through Moses. And they duplicated them to a certain degree. They manipulated people like you know what, hey, that's nothing, watch, we can do the same thing, it's all a trick, it's not of God, and they led people away from the truth of the word of God. They resisted God's truth, and as a, as a result, they began to reason among themselves that, hey, you know what, well, here's the bottom line, you know, so these men oppose the truth, they're men of depraved mind, that's why. They don't have the mind of Christ. They don't have the mind of God. They're men of depraved mind. They oppose the truth of God. And the, and the result of all of it is very simple. Their folly will be obvious to all. So also that of those two came to be. At the end of the day, it's this. You know what? All false teachers, all imitators, all counterfeits will be exposed and held to the light by God. Just as Jonas and Jambres at the end of the day were exposed for what they were, they were false teachers, they were magicians, they were, they were, they, they, they were not of God. God exposed them for that, and all false teachers will be exposed when we hold them up to the light of the word of God. God will expose them. God is not mocked. Don't deceive, be deceived. What a man sows, he's going to reap. And we need to hold people accountable to the word of God so that the folly of their lifestyle will end up being held up to the light. And as we look at this, the last thing and what we get great encouragement from is that we, we see the faithfulness of the Lord. Man, in these difficult times that we live, what a wonderful thing to know that, you know what, our God is faithful. Our God is faithful. And the example that we see is that Paul said, hey, listen, you know what? But you, talking to Timothy, said, you followed my teaching and my conduct and my purpose and my faith and patience and love and perseverance and persecutions and sufferings. You were there and you saw it firsthand. You saw that what I taught from my mouth, I lived in my life. You saw that the tongue of my mouth and the tongue of my shoe went in the same direction. You saw that my creed and my conduct were identical. You were there as witnesses of this. You saw this, and you saw me being persecuted for living a life that is right before God, but you also saw, and never forget, and take great comfort and encouragement in this, but you saw that the Lord delivered me from it all. From it all. Read 2 Corinthians 11, and all, all in his case was a lot. When he said, you saw me in Antioch and Iconium and Lystra where I was left for dead. You saw me persecuted for the cause of the gospel. And, and, and you know what? And don't dwell on all the persecution, but let us rejoice in the fact that you saw me delivered 
by God from it all. Oh, wow. When we've got the word of God, all we've got to do is read it. We saw Peter. We saw him delivered from prison. We saw James and John. We saw Paul and Silas delivered from prison in Philippi. We saw Paul delivered from prison in Rome. We saw God deliver his people every time he wanted to because he's in complete control of everything. We saw Joseph delivered from the dungeons in Egypt to rise to second in command of all of Egypt. We saw even though his brothers meant evil, God turned it into good. God is in control of everything. We saw Daniel delivered from the mouth of the lion den. We saw David as a shepherd boy delivered from a lion as he protected his sheep and later delivered from Goliath when everyone else was afraid to step up and oppose evil when they saw it. We see David delivered. We see Daniel delivered. We see Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego delivered from the fiery furnace and yet they had a peace about the fact that even if God chose not to deliver them, they would still trust in him as God. We saw Job delivered from the hand of the devil and everything that God allowed to take place in his life to restore to him everything that he had and much, much more. We saw God deliver his people every time that he chose to deliver them. We saw Israel delivered from Egypt as he went through and the sea was parted and they were delivered from it all and every one of their enemies. We see God who is able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond all we can ask or think continue to deliver his people from the hands of the enemy. We see it all. And we've got it right here. And so why should you and I be afraid to be persecuted for Christ's sake? Because the worst thing that can happen in this life is that we can be killed for our faith and blessed and precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. How bad is that? We can't lose. The game is over. We know the final score. We're watching the videotape. Chill out, relax, and get busy for the kingdom of God. Huh? Man. How can you not have encouragement in that? How can you not find encouragement in that? But I will warn you, according to the word of God, that those who want to live godly lives in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. We will be persecuted. In a world of self-love and self-fulfillment and self-gratification, begins to look at scripture and try to find reasons why we shouldn't be persecuted for Christ's sake. God wants us happy. God wants us wealthy. God wants us to enjoy life. Read your Bible. God wants us to be obedient. God wants us to serve him for he's God and we're not. God wants to use us for the kingdom of God and the gifts that he has given us to further his kingdom. God wants to use every circumstance in our life for the furtherance of the progress of the gospel. God wants to use us, and sometimes it may cost us dearly because we're to deny ourselves, pick up our cross daily, and follow him. There's a price to be paid. Genuine discipleship always comes with a price tag. Easy believism does not. Is it any wonder that some of us are not being used by God because the moment we face opposition, the moment we start to get persecuted for our faith, we start to reread the Bible to try to find some out. Paul says, listen, those who live godly in Christ will be persecuted. But evil men and imposters will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived you know what? It's going to get worse, people. It's not going to get better. And it'll only get better when our Lord and Savior comes and establishes his kingdom that will have no end. But until then, Jesus warned all of us, in this world you shall have tribulation. But let me just tell you something. Don't worry about it, because I've overcome the world. Father, thank you for the opportunity to study the word of God, the truth of your word and the, and the 
coupling with, coupled with the power and the conviction of your spirit, living within the hearts of every believer. God, your word is clear. The greatest commandment is that we will love you wholeheartedly with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength, and that we will love our neighbor as ourselves. God, help us to love you in such a way. Help us to love your word in the same way so that we are sold out, 100% sold out for the cause of Christ and the gospel. God, I thank you for the warning that we have that we can measure others by your standard, not by our own subjectivity, not by how someone parts their hair or whether they speak dynamically or whatever, but that we would measure what is said by the very word of God and not only what is said, but by the conduct behind the attitudes and the actions behind those words. God, may our lives always be in unison so that no one could deny the power of the gospel and use us as the excuse. God, may we as Paul be unashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. And we just pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.